Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the West's policy vis-a-vis Taiwan in light of the ongoing threat of Chinese aggression. In an increasingly fraught global environment, the potential of a war over Taiwan has to be among the most significant risks in the coming years. And President Biden has recently made it clear that the American government would back Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. We'll talk about why the time had come to replace so-called strategic ambiguity with greater clarity. But before we get there, I wanted to talk to David about the tragedy of the school shooting this week in Texas. David uh, has emerged as one of the most thoughtful and empathetic voices in light of this tragic event and has appeared on various television programs in Canada and the United States and would penned a beautiful essay that I'd encourage listeners and viewers to read at The Atlantic. David, thank you so much for joining me uh, for another episode of From Dialogues. Always an honor to be here. Uh, as I mentioned, I thought I would start uh, with the question of guns. In light of this tragedy, David, there's a lot of uh, calls for action on the part of American legislators. I guess just at a fundamental level, do you have a sense, David, of what types of gun control reforms would at this stage be compliant uh, with the Second Amendment? Or is there a need for a, a, a real debate about constitutional change in the United States? Well, let's start with a pragmatic assessment of where we are amid the shock and horror of, the, of these ter- recent terrible events. And there are such events every single day in the United States. This one just happened to capture the imagination of the country in a more profound way, but it's, it's uh, tragically not a unique event. Let's think about the problem and, and what might be done. There's something like 400 million firearms at loose in the United States, 40 million of which have been bought just since the beginning of the pandemic. Two years of the pandemic saw the highest gun sales in American history. As Americans... Americans have persuaded themselves that their society is on the verge of a breakdown of law and order, and they've persuaded themselves that the right thing to do in the face of a breakdown of law and order is to get yourself an individual firearm to try to protect your house. Neither of these seem like very plausible ideas to me, but a lot of people believe it, and that's what they did. So we have uh, 40 million guns, 40 million of them new, most of them in, in hands that are not trained. Meanwhile, um, the, the Supreme Court has created in the past 20 years, an individual right 
of firearms ownership. That was not there before. The idea that this, the, the Second Amendment, the courts mostly stayed away from it, and it was always it was historically understood as a grant of power to the states against the state government. That, that, that when the people who wrote the state, the Second Amendment, and the people who for almost two hundred years interpreted it, understood it to mean state armies have to be respected as well as the federal army. But in the 21st century, the, the court has created a new individual right of firearms ownership. And very shortly, um, in the month of June, the Supreme Court is probably going to strike down laws by states that restrict the ability of people to carry guns in public. So you're in a constitutional, a new constitutional regime that creates a lot of space for gun ownership. So it, it also needs to be said that while the extremist gun position is very unpopular, the guns everywhere view is very unpopular, the guns somewhere view is quite popular. So you need to take all that into account. I think that the, the situation, the presence of guns is such an overwhelming fact in American society that it's hard ever to imagine any one feasible reform that will make any difference. And, and the feasible reforms that you can imagine as being acceptable to society, like red flag laws to take guns away from dangerous people, bump into the fact that we're not very good at identifying who are going to be dangerous people. So the laws that you could pass probably won't do much. And the real problem, which is millions and millions of people having guns, they don't store safely. According to surveys, the majority of gun owners don't store their weapons safely, don't really know how to use, panic, and cause tragedy. That's a, that's a challenging problem. Before I, One more story I want to tell before I go to the solutions, because Uvalde, it's so horrible. It's so heartbreaking, those little babies. But, but the face of day-in, day-in American gun loss looks more like a story I'm about to tell you that took place in Portland, Maine, literally the day before the Uvalde massacre. Two teenage brothers uh, living in their dad's house get into an argument. One took the T-shirt, the favorite T-shirt of the other. The argument escalates. One of them smashes up the other's hamster's cage. Things get out of hand. And one of the brothers, who's 19, rushes out of the house, finds his father's pistol. Father has a, a handgun, a 22 caliber handgun, which the father has not properly stored. Grabs the handgun or steals the handgun, returns to the house at an interval, still mad, aims the gun at the brother who stole the T-shirt, the shooter, the eventual shooter says, in order to scare him, not intending to, be, uh, not intending to kill him, but he fires. He misses his brother because he's also a terrible shot and instead hits and kills his two-year-old niece. The gun comes into the house because the patriarch of the family wants, I assume, wants to be a protector, wants to look after the people he loves. So he buys a gun to do that. And what does the gun do? It kills his granddaughter because he, did, he put it somewhere his anger management issue son could find it, could grab it pointed at somebody to try to intimidate them and then fire it and kill a child. That's what it looks like. So where do we start? I think we start with a messaging campaign to people like the father of that family. So if you're buying that gun, bought it maybe in just the past two years in order to protect your family. You're just dead wrong. You're dead wrong. Uh, that, that, what that gun is probably going to be used for is to threaten somebody, maybe stolen and used by a criminal, maybe used by a teenager in a depressed mood to kill himself or herself. It may be used uh, to hurt somebody, but the odds that that gun will be used in the way that you wanted to, that you intended when you bought it, are vanishingly small. Cases of authentic, documented self-defense with handguns are very, very rare. The cases of terrible misunderstandings and accidents and tragedies are, are common. And the deaths only begin to cover the carnage because modern medicine is just very good at repairing, at repairing traumatic injuries. So while the deaths are in the thousands and tens of thousands per year, the traumatic injuries are in the hundreds of thousands per year. And these traumatic injuries can be, can be very, very severe, life-threatening. So 
I think the place I would start is we need a social movement that challenges the idea that the gun in the home makes you safe. And I think the analogy I use is 30 years ago, Americans thought of domestic violence as a private matter, unfortunate, deplorable, but of no interest other than to the husband and wife. 40 years ago, the Americans thought of drunk driving as funny. I mean, there's common. Dean Martin used to do jokes about it on his on the most popular TV show in America in the 1960s. Well, we no longer think that drunk driving is funny, and we no longer think that domestic violence is private. And we need to have a similar kind of reaction that gets guns out of people's houses. Once we make some progress on that, once you build a constituency, then you can begin to think about other kinds of legislative changes. There's so much there, David, and I just want to thank you and for your commendable commentary over the difficult past 48 hours. As I said earlier, I'd encourage Hub listeners and viewers uh, to read David's essay at The Atlantic that he got up uh, on the site literally hours after we learned of this tragedy. David, if it's okay with you, I propose we move to what we were planning to talk about today, which is another essay that you wrote for The Atlantic about President Biden's recent affirmation of America's preparedness to defend Taiwan. Let's just start with a bit of background. What was the origins and basic premise of American policy of so-called strategic ambiguity? And why do you think the time has come to replace it with a clearer message in the face of growing Chinese absurdiveness? Well, the, the phrase strategic ambiguity is itself ambiguous because it refers to two different concepts or commitments. The first was that when the United States pivoted from recognizing Taiwan as the legitimate government of all of China, to recognizing Beijing as a legitimate government of all of China. It struck a kind of deal with the Chinese and with the Taiwanese, which is there would be this fiction of one China, that the government in Beijing was the proper lawful sovereign of all of Chinese territory, including Taiwan. But the government in Beijing wouldn't act on that power. And Taiwan would be allowed to govern itself democratically or increasingly democratically. It's been a democracy since the late 1980s. And that China would not interfere. So the first ambiguity, and this imposed duties on everybody. Taiwan had a duty not to declare independence. Beijing had a duty not to enforce its authority by force. The United States had a duty to pretend to recognize Beijing's authority over Taiwan. For that reason, for example, the American office in Taiwan isn't an embassy or a consulate. Um, it's, it's a business office. And the, the person who heads that office has a very nondescript title. Um, they're not an ambassador. Or they, I, I'm not even sure they're a diplomat. I think they, they are they're some kind of trade official. The second strategic ambiguity was that the United States was then very hazy about what exactly it would do for Taiwan if Taiwan were ever attacked by the mainland. Obviously, the United States is ready and capable uh, of defending Taiwan, but it never said so. And there's no formal agreement with Taiwan. Taiwan's not a sovereign. So this status quo prevailed from the late 1970s until very recently. But it's come under stress because China has behaved more and more assertively toward Taiwan. So China has begun breaking its side of the deal, which is, yeah, we are theoretically sovereign, but we're not going to exercise the sovereignty. As China has, they've they've done things like um, flown their ever larger air wings, ever deeper into controlled Taiwanese airspace. They have war-gamed uh, naval blockades of Taiwan. They, they, there's an intensifying barrage of cyber attacks on Taiwanese security. And they speak, the Chinese officials speak in more and more inflammatory ways against Taiwan, threatening war. So I think Biden's reaction was to say, look, the Chinese, the strategic ambiguity is, is breaking down. The Chinese are no longer accepting the old status quo where they have the 
theoretical overlord, but practically not. And that means that someone has to rethink this. There has been a kind of, and I'm, this is too long an answer to your question, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop in a moment. But there's been a kind of patronizing tone to the coverage of what Biden did. Biden has, over the past nine months, three separate times, in almost identical language, said, I have a commitment to defend Taiwan. Uh, we will defend Taiwan. He's not gone beyond that, but um, and he's, he's taken yes and no questions, and he's reaffirmed that his clarity. So there's been this coverage as if he's some like doddering old man, you know, emitting random vagaries. Now, this is something he's obviously thought about. And I think the driving is uh, driving force is the change in the relationship between Beijing and Taipei in a way that's more asserted by Taipei and it's calling by Beijing and that's calling for a new kind of American policy in response. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You argue in the, in the same essay, David, that the timing of President Biden's statement is well-timed because Canada, China rather finds itself in something of a position of vulnerability. You want to outline your argument here for a minute? Yeah. So in 2019, then President Trump was talking to aides and said, if China attacks Taiwan, they're going to win. It's, you know, China's right next door. We're far away. What can we do? And there has been tremendous pessimism. I think Trump's view was not unique, and I'm sure it was he communicated it to the Chinese. I think in 2022, we've had, thanks to the heroism of the Ukrainians, but also due to China's own mismanagement of its COVID problem, I think the world looks a little different. That the capabilities of a NATO-type army suddenly look a lot more impressive. If you're the Chinese, you have to say, would the Russian invasion of Ukraine have gone better if there had been 300 kilometers of water between Russia and Ukraine? Probably would have gone even worse than it did. And there are 300 kilometers of water between the mainland and, and Taiwan. And Taiwan is a highly unified society. Ukraine was divided. I mean, there are other ways of attacking than just sending, you can do blockades, you can do uh, cyber attacks. There are other ways, there are less stupid and brutal ways of, of committing aggression. But the Chinese have to worry. Meanwhile, they're heading toward probably a zero growth economic year, maybe into the first true recession um, since Tiananmen Square back in the late 80s. Um, their economic model is breaking down. The idea of borrowing ever greater debt from domestic trap savers to build ever more useless junk, not only inside China, but in Africa now, the so-called Belt Road, which just amounted to creating eyesores all over Africa financed by Chinese debt. That model seems to be looking less robust. And so whether by design or by happy accident, Biden said, okay, if we're going to change, if we're going to take a more forward position, not dramatically, but a little more forward, a great moment to do it is when China is feeling much less self-confident, much more anxious about its own capabilities than it did three years ago. I'll come to the question of the state of China's economy and its uh, political system in a minute. But before I do, if the West in general and the US in particular is currently in a position of some strength relative to China, 
what we, should we be doing commercially, diplomatically, or militarily to seize the moment and further strengthen our position? I speak with someone, by the way, who these days counts as a relative softliner on China. I mean, it's a very, been a very strange thing for me because 15 years ago, I had certain views that I would express, and they were regarded as very hardline. And all these years later, this is something I've not changed my mind about. I have the same views. And the, the discussion in Washington shifted. So what, having been a, a hardliner of the hardliners 15 years ago, I'm now a softliner. I think we need to continue to hope for the best. The point of this guarantee to Taiwan is to keep the peace. And we need to preserve the trading arrangements with China. We need them to not re revert to protections. We need to understand, in my opinion, that the Chinese moving hundreds of millions of people from rural poverty to urban global middle class, that, that's a it creates environmental challenges. That's one of the greatest things that's happened in the history of the human race. And people are so, the Chinese people, the world, everyone's so much better off as a result. We have environmental challenges as a result, but we will be able to manage those, I hope. So I think we need to keep an open hand policy to China, always saying if there's going to be any quarrel, it's going to be because of you, not because of us. But we do need to protect our friends. And we also need to bear in mind that a lot of the nationalist aggression of the present constellation of forces in China comes about because of the increasing, I think, economic problems that, that in the, China didn't have to speak so loudly, the leaders of China. In the days when they were delivering 10% growth and everybody was getting better off all the time, the regime pr proved its legitimacy by what it delivered in material benefit. So it's, it's not, it's losing its ability to deliver rapidly improving material benefits to ordinary people. So it's offering the delusions of nationalism instead. So we have to be ready for that, but we should not be pushed toward a, an aggressive or Cold War posture. We need to continue to hope for the best with China. To that point, David, uh, just over a year ago in the Atlantic, in an Atlantic essay entitled China as a Paper Dragon, you argued that China's economy, politics, and society were more dysfunctional than a lot of voices in the West understood. Uh, as you put it then, Western leaders needed to recognize, quote, the very real limits besetting China, a fast aging population, massive internal indebtedness, and a regime whose worsening repression suggests its declining popularity. Suppose a two-part question. One, why did so many analysts and commentators overestimate China? And two, why do you think they're wrong? Well, the propensity to overestimate authoritarian regimes goes back a long way. And it is part of the healthy self-criticism of democracy that we always think, whether it's the Kaiser's Germany, whether, uh, you know, whether it's the triumph of the will problem, that the authoritarian regime masses people in blocks and puts on a show. And everybody thinks this regime must be really powerful. And our, our society looks so disorganized, so sloppy, it's full of squabbling and chaos and disagreement. So we feel and look weak. But democracy is actually a very, uh, we've been doing this since the, the American Civil War. We've been putting autocratic regimes to the test against democratic regimes. And the democratic regime, after a lot of blundering at the beginning, because democratic regimes are peaceful, always wins. And it, it wins because ultimately it can tax more. Um, ultimately, it can in, invent more. Um, it, it can tax more because it has. It begins with consent, and if the leaders are in a conflict where they have won the consent of their people, they can extract enormous sacrifices from their society. And that's that's one of the big surprises always in these conflicts. That yeah, the, the Ukrainians can say every man of military age must serve, and most of their men say okay. The Russians try a draft, and their people run away because the Ukrainians they're fighting to defend their homes, but they also have democratic consent and people comply. So I think that's something we get distracted by. And I think there's also been a, a tendency 
in American debates say, if there's something you want done, and maybe it's a good thing, like uh, you want to send a man to the moon. So how do you, why don't we just spend a lot of money to spend a man to the moon? That seems dumb. Well, the Russians might do it first. Oh, okay, then I guess we have to. So when you want to do some things, and good things, like improve science and math education in the school, or invest more, get people to save more, you invoke the danger from abroad as a way to win a policy debate. So there, And no one, no one wants to be the person that says, well, I don't know that these guys are really so tough as all that, because if you're wrong, you look really bad. Remember, mistakes on the optimist side always do you discredit. Mistakes on the pessimist side can always get away with. So I, I think that's a lot of where it comes from. And I, I think, but I think more seriously, there is a, there's been a tendency to believe things that are written Chinese economic. If something's in writing, we believe it. And we don't ask where this number come from. What does it represent? Let me just ask you a penultimate question, David. I, I want to read you a quote from uh, George Kennan's long telegram and, and get your response. He wrote, much depends on health and vigor of our own society. World communism is a malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. This is the point at which domestic and foreign policies meet. Every courageous and incisive measure to solve internal problems of our own society, to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community spirit of our own people is a diplomatic victory over Moscow worth a thousand diplomatic notes and joint communiques. If we cannot abandon fatalism and indifference in the face of deficiencies in our own society, Moscow will profit. Unquote. How much is the question of the outcome of the U.S.-China geopolitical and technological rivalry fundamentally about the health of American society? Yeah, that's, that's a great quote and a, and a great thought. But I also want to just quibble a little bit about the word rivalry, because in the long run, and unlike the United States and the Soviet Union after World War II, the interests of these two societies are highly congruent. And where where we hope in 1947, when you looked at the Soviet Union, you say, how do we how do we see the end of Soviet communism? It's withdraw, uh, it's it's forced withdrawal from the territories it's occupied. I think what we all want to see from China is a gradual evolution of China in more liberal directions. We recognize it probably can't happen all at once, and it may be dangerous and unstable if it happens all at once. We want to see kind of an, an opening of more and more space for Chinese civil society. We want to see a reduction of nationalist fervor, but in the end. Their economy is very different from that, that of the United States. They're going to have a lot more low-wage labor. And you know, they're beneficial gains from trade. So the goal of policy is to prevent this budding rivalry from, from flowering. But that one of the parts of that is taking away the temptation for the regime to score a propaganda success in the face of other bad news by bullying Taiwan. And that's, that's a very significant country. It's a very important economically. It's a Chinese-speaking democracy, which is a very precious thing in a world where we're debating the fate of democratic ideas on the larger Chinese mainland. And it's defensible, unlike Hong Kong. Just one final question, David, just to bring it back home for a minute. With all of these huge geopolitical issues in play, what should Canada be doing? I mean, it's notable that just this week, Canada was excluded from the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity between the US, Australia, New Zealand, India, Singapore, Japan, and South Korea. What must Canada do to put itself back on the radar of the United States and others? Canada first has to begin. This is not a crucial thing, but it, it's the price of the, of the admission ticket. Have a meaningful defense capability. You have to have something to contribute if you want to join the dialogue. This is not ultimately a military problem, but military capability is how we sort out who who we are going to hear from on all of these other questions. I think Canada has its own very important relationship 
with China, flows of investment, uh, flows of people-to-people contacts. But yes, yeah, so start with a meaningful defense capability, hit the 2% target, try to get a little above it. And then Canada can be a voice at the table for some of the other aspects of this relationship, including the environmental. That, you know, I, I, one of the things I said in that article that you quoted is, um, I th- I'm sorry, this is a different article in the Atlantic, that right now China's electricity use for air conditioning alone is equal to the entire electrical consumption of all of the five boroughs of New York. And China, on its present trajectory, is going to double its air conditioning use over the next 10 years. So they're not going to go without air conditioning, obviously. So we have to find some way of working harmoniously together to ensure that as China meets its people's needs for a rising standard of living, which are going to involve more electricity, that we are all working together to encourage China to generate its electricity in green ways. And then there's some sanctions, including, you know, that access to markets in the West will depend on cleaning up its environmental act. And Canada there can only have leverage if it's part of a larger block, and ideally a NAFTA block where the United States, Mexico, and Canada together work out some emissions standards that are three-way. And then you say, well, here's the largest economic block in the world, and we have a deal with the European Union, which is also an enormous economic block. This is the price of carbon. If you want to play in the fully developed world and China, you have to start paying that price or else you won't have full access to our markets. Well, David, like every two weeks, there's uh, so much there for our listeners and viewers from tragedy in Texas to thinking big picture about Taiwan and Canada's relationship uh, to China. I want to thank you for another episode of From Dialogues and, and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.